Good morning. Sorry to break up the conversation. It's good to hear, though. You're all very welcome. Before we uh, start, there are a few things I need to mention just about this morning and then uh, beyond this morning. The crash room will be open uh, at the back of uh, as you leave, essentially, is where the cross crash room is. That's available for parents, I guess, to take your own child into if you need to. And then Sunday school is restarting this morning, so I'll indicate uh, when the Sunday school will be moving next door. And then we are also celebrating the Lord's Supper together this morning. Our setup's a little different. The table's off to the side, but we will be, uh, even though the table has not been put in the center, we are going to center our thoughts on the Lord's Supper at the end of our time together, and that will be after our uh, streaming service has stopped. We'll just move straight into the Lord's Supper. And then up to this point, we have been exiting in the mornings through these doors, but we've decided on reflection that it's actually safer rather than have you pour out into the car park if we exit through the main doors. And although that's, those are the doors that you came in through, at the end of the service, there's only one way of movement at that point because no one else is trying to come in. So we'll leave at the end through the doors that you came in through. And then I'm really pleased to be able to uh, announce that we are beginning our evening service today. So we meet again at 6 p.m. today. And if you haven't been in the evenings before, this is the ideal time to come as we restart after a long break from our evening services. And then you should have all received an email, I hope, about a possible move to two morning services. And the logic of that is to allow all of you to come in the morning and to have room for new people who might want to come as well. We don't want to be so uh, Max died in our space that we have no room for newcomers. So thank you to all of you who have replied already to that email. If you haven't replied, please just have a look at your emails, send us a quick response, and essentially all we need to know is, if we went to two services, would you plan to come to a 9.30 service or an 11.15 service, or would you be happy coming to either service, depending on what the numbers were. That would be really helpful for us to know. We haven't decided yet that we need to do that, but we want to be prepared. And if we make that decision, we won't spring it on you. We'll tell you in advance so that you know it's happening. Until you hear differently, we're at 10.45 though. I think that's all that I need to mention. We're going to pray in a moment, but we may have found that our morning has been busy, maybe filled with noise. So let's just take a moment to be quiet in God's presence and to focus our attention again on Him. Lord God, we know that details are important. We know that organization is important, but that is not why we've come this morning. We have come for you. We need you. 
We're here in our presence, to, in your presence, to meet with you, to hear from you, and to turn our hearts to you again. We love all the gifts that you give us, but we say this morning that we love you more than any of your gifts. You are the greatest treasure. And if we've forgotten that this week, we take the time to remind ourselves of it now. As we come, we're so thankful to be welcomed by you because of your son Jesus and all that he has done. We're so blessed to have your Holy Spirit with us, among us. And we're so glad that you still speak to us and that we can speak to you. So in this time we have together, will you refill our hearts with praise and love? Amen. We're going to join in a short Bible reading together from Psalm 73. God has given us these words to speak back to Him, and they're going to appear on the screen behind me. I'll ask you to stand, and we'll say them together. And then as we've taken our seats again, the musicians then will lead us in a song. But first, let's stand and join in these words from Psalm 73 to our God. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen.
Sunday school are going to be moving next door. They'll be rejoining us for the Lord's Supper, but they're going to move next door at this point. Before we open our Bibles, let's start with a question first. What do you need right now? In your situation, what is your most pressing requirement? Is it more money? More time? Better health? Is it a friend that you need? A job? New neighbors? Maybe you'd say what you need is patience. Or what you need is deliverance from some bind that you find yourself in. What do you need? Well, as we turn to the book of Judges this morning, we're going to find the way you and I would answer that question is not always the way God would answer it. We're picking up at the beginning of Judges chapter 6, and we're going to read through to verse 32 of chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. 
They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said to him, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's hair, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, 
and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished. And with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So, because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerob Baal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. This is God's Word. And it begins with another of the cycles that is familiar to us by now. The cycle of God's deliverance followed by Israel forsaking the Lord and then falling under oppression. And this is all the more sad because of the high praises of God that we heard in chapter 5. Chapter 5 was a victory song. It was celebrating the Lord's victory over King Jabin and his general Sisera who had been oppressing Israel. But what we discover is a generation later, the Israelites slide back into defiance of the Lord again. And that defiance has the same consequence it always has. Because the Israelites do not want the Lord, he gives them into the hands of their enemies. But these particular enemies are a bit different from the other ones we've met in this book. The Midianites don't so much rule Israel as raid Israel again and again and again. They're annual visitors to Israel. Every year as the Israelite crops begin to sprout, the Midianites and their mates cross the Jordan River and they descend on Israel from the east, like a swarm of locusts, we're told. And just like locusts, they ravage the land until it's bare. And then they move on, only to come back the next year and do it all over again. And look what a pitiful state the Israelites are in because of this. Verse 2 says, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. God had promised Israel this land, but here they are hiding away in dens and caves in the mountains just like animals. And so verse 6 says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. 
It took them seven years to get to that point. But finally, they seem to have decided when all else fails, when it's really, really desperate, okay, we'll cry to the Lord. As we've seen before in this book, there's no suggestion here this is a cry of repentance. It doesn't indicate a real change of heart. It's a cry of distress, not repentance. And if we ask, what are the Israelites expecting from the Lord here? The answer, I think, is obvious. They are expecting deliverance. We're Israelites. Get us out of here. We hate living in dens and caves in the mountains. Get rid of these stinking Midianites, Lord, so we can get back where we belong. Back to bumper harvests and an easy life. Certainly, that is what the Israelites think they need. But the Lord doesn't agree. Look at verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The people want... And they believe that they need right now deliverance from the Midianites. And the Lord sends them a prophet to remind them of God's word. Dale Ralph Davis explains the situation here. He says, sending a prophet in this situation would be like a stranded motorist calling a garage for assistance and the garage sending a philosopher instead of a mechanic. Israel asks for an act of God's power, and he sends them a proclaimer of his word. That is not what Israel thought they needed. But the Lord knows, even more than being delivered from their oppression, what Israel needs is to know why they are being oppressed. Because what good is short-term deliverance going to do Israel unless they learn to listen to God and obey Him. If they don't begin to take God's Word seriously, they have no long-term hope. So when Israel asks for an act of God's power, God sends them a proclaimer of His Word. And the lesson is that sometimes we need God's Word more than we need His deliverance. Sometimes, like Israel, you and I can be in a situation we don't like, and we cry out to God, fix it, change it, sort it out, take it away. And God's response is to say to us, what you need most in this situation is to be changed yourself. That's what will bring the most long-term good. And so God says, rather than fixing your situation, I'm going to give you the opportunity to listen carefully to my word.
I would guess we've all had the experience of coming to church and hearing from a passage of God's Word, and we go away saying, well, there was nothing in that for me. That didn't hit the spot for me. But maybe on those occasions, that Word was exactly what God wanted us to hear. It's just that we thought we needed something different. Maybe we wanted to hear about our enemies being dealt with. But God knew we needed to hear about learning forgiveness. Or trusting His wisdom. Or any number of things that we personally didn't think were important in our situation. If God's Word ever seems to be irrelevant in our circumstances then it's time to stop and ask ourselves, do I need to look at my circumstances differently? Does God want me to hear something I just haven't been open to hearing? Maybe His Word is showing me I need to start thinking differently or living differently. Maybe I've only been thinking about God as my Savior when I need to start thinking of him as my loving father who wants me to know him and develop a living relationship with him. Thank God he often does deliver us from trouble. But let's be open to the possibility that sometimes his priority is not taking away our misery. His priority is showing us how we can obey and change and grow in the midst of our misery. Yes, in the long term, God will wipe away every tear. He will. He's promised to do that. But in the short term, He might leave you and me with some tears. While He asks us to listen to Him and learn to love Him and commit ourselves to Him. Instead of just squawking for deliverance. Sometimes you and I need God's Word more than His deliverance. And sometimes we need God's presence more than His explanation. What happens next in our passage is another indication of God's amazing grace. The people have cried for deliverance. God has sent them a prophet because what they need is his word. They needed to hear his voice and know him. But now on the heels of that unnamed prophet, God does go to work preparing a deliverer for Israel. And as we'll see, it takes a fair bit of preparation. Gideon is listed in the New Testament as a man of faith. But like we saw earlier with Barak a couple of chapters ago, Gideon's faith did not arrive fully formed. It had to be developed. And that development starts here. Verse 11 tells us Gideon is visited by the angel of the Lord. And it's worth pausing to ask who this is exactly. Because as we read the passage earlier, you might have noticed sometimes the angel of the Lord is referred to not as the angel of the Lord, but as the Lord. 
For example, in verse 14 and a couple of other places. So who is this? Is it an angel or is it the Lord himself in angelic or even human form? That is a question that's been around for a long time and Christians have come to different conclusions on it. I'm certainly not in a position to resolve that long debate once and for all in these moments. But my own sense, just for what it's worth, is that this is an angel who has been sent with full and complete authority to speak and to act on God's behalf. So this individual is so fully aligned with God's will in the situation that the writer of Judges can refer to him as even the Lord. And this angel can even receive a sacrifice on the Lord's behalf. But in the end, whether we decide this is actually the Lord himself or an angel sent with all of the Lord's authority, the situation is pretty much the same either way. Gideon here is receiving a message from the Lord. It's a powerful moment in his life. And verse 11 says, This message comes while Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Obviously, a wine press was not the normal place to thresh wheat. It's a stone trough in the ground where people would uh, tread on the grapes to squeeze out the juice. And the fact that Gideon is using this wine press to try and thresh wheat instead, well, in one sense, it might be a sign that he's a resourceful man, but I think it's definitely a sign that he's wary of the Midianites and he's trying to do things in secret. In any case, the angel arrives and he kicks off this meeting with a bold announcement in verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Well, in what follows, Gideon is going to question both parts of that announcement. First, he takes issue with the part about the Lord being with him. Look at verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. We don't know what tone of voice Gideon uses here. It's not clear if he's being a bit cheeky when he says these words or if he's being completely respectful. But either way, what Gideon is asking for is an explanation. Why is this situation happening? Where are the wonders our ancestors talked about? And why has the Lord abandoned us? Tell me what I want to know. Answer my burning questions. Now, there are lots of answers the angel could give. He could point out that Israel has turned from the Lord, and the Lord has always made the consequences of that very clear. The angel might also have pointed out that by sending him to commission Gideon, the Lord is proving he hasn't abandoned Israel at all. Those are answers the angel could have given. But notice what he actually does. In verse 14, he completely ignores Gideon's demand for an explanation. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? 
the angel or the Lord, whoever it is exactly, is not here to give explanations. He's here to get Gideon going on his mission. But Gideon now wants an explanation for why he in particular has been chosen for the mission. Verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I see of Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. We'll find out later that is not actually true. Gideon is able to call on 10 of his servants for a nighttime job. That implies he has more than 10 servants. And his dad, Joash, seems to be pretty influential in the community. So despite what Gideon says here, he and his family are fairly big dogs in Israel. Having said that, I have no doubt that Gideon feels inadequate. He wants to know why God has singled him out. But again, instead of an explanation... The Lord or the angel says in verse 16, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving no one alive. Never mind what you want to know, Gideon. What you need to know is that I will be with you. That is more valuable to you, Gideon, than all the other details you want to know about. And so Gideon learns his first lesson about faith. We need God's presence more than we need his explanations. Even if Gideon could look over God's shoulder and see all the inner workings of God's plan, that would not be as helpful to Gideon as the simple knowledge that this all-wise, all-powerful God is with him. And you and I too, we can live with uncertainty if we have God's presence. It's like a child who's lost in one of those big shopping centers. That child doesn't need to know someone to come along and show her uh, maps and pathways and explain to her how many floors there are in the car park and how many exits and entrances. No, what the child needs is to have her parent take her by the hand and say, it's okay, I'm here, walk with me and we'll get home. That's what Gideon needed, that's what you and I need. If today we were shown the labyrinth of this life and all its pathways, if all the knots in the tapestry were explained to us today, it wouldn't do us half as much good as simply knowing our Father in heaven will walk with us into the future. All you and I have to do is walk with him and he will get us home. And that's why when we read through scripture, these words, I am with you, they almost become God's standard calling card with his people. We hear God say these words to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua, to Jeremiah. We hear the risen Lord Jesus say these words to his disciples. We hear him say those words to the Apostle Paul. 
As God's people, everything we need is supplied in those four words. I am with you. And certainly here, when these words sink in for Gideon, the result is peace. Despite what might be ahead for him. Despite all the unknowns of when or where and how or why. But before Gideon can have peace, he needs to know this really is the Lord he's hearing from. Either the Lord in person or the Lord's representative. So Gideon goes and he prepares an offering which is then consumed by fire there on the spot. That is the sign. There's no doubt this is the Lord he's dealing with. And it's terrifying for Gideon. Look at verse 22. It says, after the uh, offering has been consumed, verse 22 says, when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. It's not surprising that Gideon would be terrified. But what the Lord wants him to take from this actually is confidence. The Lord really is with him. And so Gideon finds peace in that greater reality. However scared he feels about what's ahead, however little he knows about how it's going to work, this truth of God's presence allows him to be at peace. Gideon, Gideon started out demanding explanations from God. And he ended up finding that God's presence was what he needed most. And throughout the centuries, God's people have found that to be the case. We understand so very little of what goes on in our lives. But when God is with us, we can keep going. Here, Gideon builds an altar to the Lord, and no doubt he would love to stay here, worshiping in this place that's so special and significant for him. But having given Gideon the assurance he needs, God wastes no time at all in sending Gideon out on his first mission. Verse 25, that same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So suddenly we find out something else about Gideon that is very significant. His father, Joash, is a Baal worshiper. Baal was the Canaanite storm god, and Asherah was supposedly Baal's female friend. That's the kind of stuff Gideon's family are into. So much that they own the local altar to Baal. They're heading up the local church of Baal. So the first mission the Lord gives Gideon is a mission that may well cause a rift between him and his family. That's putting it mildly. 
And so Gideon very quickly learns sometimes we need the commitment to do hard things in obedience to God's word. What you and I want most of the time is an easy life. Or, if not an easy life, then we want the opportunity to do glorious things. We want to be part of exciting triumphs. But very often what God calls us to is a hard thing. An act of obedience that has a potential to really cost us. Like, for example, taking a stand for truth and fairness at work or at school. Like foregoing some ambition of our own so we can help somebody else in their need. In Gideon's case, the hard thing he is called to do is to tackle the idol worship in his own home. Some people reading this passage have decided they're going to be disappointed with Gideon because verse 27 says, he and his ten servants carried out their mission at night because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople. I have to say, I think it's a bit nitpicky to mark Gideon down for that. Wouldn't you and I be afraid too in that situation? But the fact is, in spite of his fear, Gideon did what God called him to do. I see nothing here in the text about God telling Gideon to pull down the altar in the middle of the day while everyone's doing their shopping. God just said, tear it down. And the fact that Gideon does is testimony to his commitment to God. It's testimony too to how the presence of God enabled him to do this hard thing. And even as he did the job at night, Gideon must surely have expected that he'd get caught. He really was standing up to be counted, even if it took a few hours to identify him as the culprit. But the townspeople do identify him, and verse 30 says, the people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerob Baal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. It has to be a major surprise that Joash chooses to stand with his son here. And it seems his decision doesn't just come from loyalty to Gideon. Maybe it was the sight of his gods, Baal and Asher, reduced to dust and ashes. Maybe that was what woke Joash up. He certainly seems to have grasped the reality that if Baal really is a god, he doesn't need a few farmers to save him from Gideon. If Baal's a real god, he can avenge himself. And just to be clear as we think about this, 
This incident is not promising that if we choose to obey the Lord rather than fall in line with our family, then our family will come and believe in the Lord. That happened this time, but this is not a promise or guarantee it will happen every time. But surely what we can say is that when we obey the Lord, we mustn't try to write the script ahead of time. Certainly Gideon expected wrath from his father. That's why he did the mission at night. In his own head, Gideon had already written the script. He knew how things were going to go. He would obey the Lord and his dad would disown him and possibly kill him. Now, as we saw, it's to his credit that Gideon obeyed anyway, despite that expectation he had. But then Gideon finds out when we step out in obedience to God, we simply cannot write the script ahead of time. God is the script writer. And you and I cannot guess where God is going to take things. Gideon imagined his night mission would be a courageous stand for the Lord that would really change nothing. But in fact, that ruined altar transformed his father's heart. So when you're faced with some hard act of obedience, some act of obedience to God's word, don't take it upon yourself to try and figure out the end of the story. Let God do that. He is always a better, wiser script writer than us. Our part is to take courage from his presence with us and to have the commitment to do the hard thing he asks of us. So as God's people, let's listen to his word even when it's not what we think we need. And as we commit to obey his word, let's count on his presence and let's see what he makes of our obedience. Our next song is a, both a response to God's word and it's also a lead-in to the Lord's Supper where we will be focusing on Emmanuel, God with us. But first, the musicians will lead us in, yet not I, but through Christ in me. gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer there is no more for heaven now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to this I hold my hope is only Jesus, for my life is holy 
I, but through Christ.